Introducing the Dark Girl Boss podcast for the melanated woman and girl across the globe. Unlock your genes of greatness. Feel powerful within the skin you are in. Love your unique DNA through our stories, facts, original narratives, quotes and poems. Join me, your host, Khadija Ward, on all major podcast platforms. Feel great and do great with the Dark Girl Boss podcast not to be missed. Well, my beauties, I've been off the grid for a bit, but I'm back now. Um, I must tell you, last week I had a fantastic week. Last Wednesday, I went to Ascot, something that I don't um, normally do, but I went to Ascot with um, Agator's African Ladies Day. It was absolutely fantastic, off the chain, so much fun, just you know, just bonding with, with with family, with community. It was wonderful. And I had a little flutter. I didn't win anything, but I had a little flutter. Watching the races, it was all fun. Absolutely fantastic. Agatours, and that's Agatours is run by Warrior Queen, Sister Angie Rose, and her other half, Yui Rose. Check out Agatours, agatours.co.uk that's a-g-a-tours.co.uk check it out my people London is the place for me London this lovely city Windrush 75 years I'd like to start by saying give thanks for life give thanks to our ancient ancestors and our ancestors of the Windrush generation that transitioned here in Britain but probably never dreamed they wouldn't make it back to their homeland. I know my father had a 10-year plan for us all to be here and go back to Barbados but alas he and my mother are among the group of ancestors that transitioned here. I also give thanks to those of our Windrush elders that are still with us, to you all, those alive and those transitioned. You came with your culture tenacity, intelligence, talents, integrity, style, smiles, unity, positive vibrations and authenticity. And with that, you transformed Britain in every way possible. We salute you. Give thanks for paving the way for us here today. For without you, we wouldn't be who we are, where we are or have what we have. Give thanks and praise. London is the place for me. London, this lovely city. When they contrasted the standard of living, even in wartime Britain, with what they'd known previously, many decided to return after the war and make their permanent homes here. As citizens of the Commonwealth, they were fully entitled to do this. But many found there were quite a lot of things that would take some getting used to. The climate is something you can't really sneeze off. That's terrific. You can't begin to imagine what England is like. Buildings were so dismal and so old. Yes, brother, England was cold. Food, that makes an awful lot of difference too, because I mean, in the West Indies, things are highly seasoned and all of that. Whereas English food is very, very plain, very, very mild. they were offered were those that white workers weren't too keen on taking. Lowly paid positions or jobs where the work was hard or heavy or both. In some situations they've made themselves quite indispensable. It's difficult for instance to see how the transport systems of London and Birmingham could now function without them. I expected it to be much more advanced. The buildings to be higher and the Everything to be much quicker, faster, you know. I found the place very disappointing, Lord. Yes, this sight was frightening. I'm back. Wow. The Windrush generation began 22nd of June 1948. The ship SS Windrush docked in Tilbury Docks of Essex in Britain, and on it were our parents looking fly 
young and beautiful descendants of Africans that had been born and raised in various parts of the colonized Caribbean, Barbados, St. Vincent, St. Lucia, Jamaica, Trinidad, all over the Caribbean. On their trip, our, our parents must have had mixed feelings of excitement, anxiety, fear, joy, hope, big dreams, riches, optimism, and more as they traveled for a month by sea and entered into this cold, strange land called Great Britain. And incidentally, which they saw as the motherland, would you believe? In the recording I just played where the commentator was talking as our, our parents stepped off the ship, he states, our parents came because they couldn't find work. Now that is not entirely true. They came because they were invited by Britain after the government asked them to come to help rebuild it after World War II. There was a negative impact on Britain, well, on the economy. Um, so let's not forget also thousands of Caribbean men and women had been recruited to serve in the armed forces. Our parents fought for Britain during the so-called World War II. There's a sister called um, Selena Carty. Uh, she's, she's based in Britain, who started an organization called Black Poppy Rose in remembrance of our people that sacrificed their lives fighting in European wars. Also on her website, there's info on Windrush and an article and photo of her with an elder called Alfred Gardner, who is one of the two surviving passengers in the UK whom travelled aboard the SS Windrush in 1948. Yeah, so that's really nice to see. You can go on there and read that article. You can also order a Black Poppy Rose remembrance pin on her website for only £5. So check out the sister's website to learn more. It's blackpoppyrose.org. Some nice still pan there. Compliments of DJ Still Pan. Check him out on YouTube. Anyway, back to um, Britain's economy and why we were here. Britain was in dire straits. Um, aerial bombardment had destroyed cities. It was exhausted and devastated. There were major shortages of goods and labour for the rebuilding of this country. It needed all the help it could get. And it turned to our people in the Caribbean. We were required in every sector from manufacturing, public transport, the NHS and public services generally. Some of our parents were qualified lawyers, but were not allowed to practice in Britain due to racism, as law was seen as far too prestigious for the likes of us. Remember at the beginning, I said um, our parents transformed Britain and you know they actually did and I don't just mean just doing through the hard work and doing their jobs I mean they thrived in a hostile and racist environment they brought with them their authenticity as I said and their culture arts you know food music soca calypso reggae all of it yeah Notting Hill Carnival founded by Trinidadian activist Claudia Jones in 1966, I believe. In Barbados, we call it cropover. Yeah, same celebration, but we call it cropover. But Claudia Jones brought the Caribbean here, a celebration in Britain, so we could enjoy something of home. You know, we had, we brought the cricket, not just the cricket, sports in general. We revolutionized British sports, period. We had our own systems as well, or the partner. I mean, the carnival has become like an international celebration. People come from, you know, all over the world to join in the carnival, yeah? That was started by, by our people, yeah? Our elders started that. 
Yeah. I always remember like house parties, you know, with my parents. Um, I remember my parents taking us to house parties, you know. <laughs> but, you know, we just sit there. I just get up and dance, actually. I was only probably about nine. But I remember like we'd go to, you know, house parties and, you know, you take your kids. Um, I remember my dad and my uncle, Alfonso, and their friends, you know, smashing down the dominoes and having a drink of rum. You know, they were good times. I, I absolutely loved my childhood. Um, you know, and then we took over the raving, you know, with the sound systems, you know, just Shaka and Fat Man and then people there. And that was an entire movement. And it was a sense of belonging um, to us. Music, it was in our blood. It was cultural, you know. But we have actually taken over. You know, we've got the, the dance hall, the UK garage now, the jungle, the hip hop and the soul. We created the music industry. We are the music industry and it would not exist without us. River and blues, all of it, all of it, all of it. It belongs to us. We created it. Even if people may be trying to, you know, take it over, but we know where it comes from. We know who created it. And we know without us, it just would not exist. London is the place for me. London. This lovely city. Many decided to return after the war and make their permanent homes here. As citizens of the Commonwealth, they were fully entitled to do this. But many found there were quite a lot of things that would take some getting used to. The climate is something you can't really sneeze off. That's terrific. You can't begin to imagine what England is like. Buildings were so dismal and so old. Yes, brother, England was cold. Food, that makes an awful lot of difference too, because I mean, in the West Indies, things are highly seasoned and all of that, whereas the English food is very, very plain, very, very mild. My father uh, came here in 1958. I still have his original passport. He joined his elder brother, who was already here, and they shared some small digs. Um, back home, my dad was a carpenter. He used to make beautiful furniture from mahogany tree trees. And when he came to Britain, he, he couldn't do carpentry. He worked here for two years doing various jobs, including long-distance lorry driving. Then when he had saved enough money, he sent for my mother and my sister, who was two at the time. And after the arrival of my mother, I was born a year later. Uh, my elder brother and sister, um, Anita and Keith Ward, were left behind and were supposed to come to Britain at a later date. They were being raised by my aunt Enid, my dad's sister. Uh, my parents would write, send money and send barrels. Uh, my sister and brother ended up staying and growing up in Barbados because my dad could only afford to send for them one at a time. And my sister, only 10, I think, at the time, wouldn't leave my brother because they was really close. There was only like 18 months between them. And by the time my dad had enough money to send for them both, um, they wasn't allowed as the laws in Britain had changed. Um, you know, so they grew up in Barbados and um, we missed out on growing up with the entire part of our family. And so I feel the, the Windrush um, era, it caused a lot of broken, you know, broken families, I believe. I mean, I didn't grow up with my brother and sister. I first met my um, brother and sister in 1978, I believe it was, um, when my mother took me back. I went to Barbados for the first time and um, it was, I mean, I fell in love with my brother and sister immediately. Um, but I just, I, I just absolutely loved it in Barbados. It just like to see like everyone that looked like me, it was just absolutely wonderful. And also everyone used to talk like they'd say, good morning and, you know, good night um, when they saw you in the evening, because that's what we Bajans say when we see you in the in the evening, we say good night. Um, and I'd be like to my mum, mum, do you know him? Mum, do you know her? And my mum would be like, you know, no, that's how we do it here. And I was surprised because obviously brought up in England, I think I was only about 14 or 15. Nobody speaks to you if they don't know you. I mean, they don't even speak to you hardly if they do know you. But um, to... Everybody acknowledging you, acknowledging you, even if they didn't know you, that's that's culturally that's what we do. 
because we just have the love we have so much love for each other we just, i'm not being idealistic um you know we do we just naturally have a love for each other and other people you know so that's why we acknowledge it's just manners it's just really it's just good manners and so that was kind of a bit of a shock to me you know having been brought up in england but it was nice to see and also you know um how they act acted on buses i saw um you know my mum would make us get up if there was an elder there to sit down but here in england it's like the little child sitting on the seat and then there's uh, you know an, someone standing up and they won't give it to the elder it's very very different it's different culture um yeah we just gave up to make seats or then or also you'd help people out if you're sitting down you take someone shopping and put it on your lap so that if there wasn't enough room on the bus it's all it's very much community living and assisting each other and helping each other and working together and a lot of that has been lost um growing up within this society living in this society and it's just very very unfortunate but it's something that we should you know try to regain we must always remember um the lives that our parents led and the values that they gave us and we have to try to maintain those values very very important after they stepped off the windrush 22nd of june 1948 i believe reality set in rather quickly for, for our parents. I mean, when my mother arrived, she couldn't believe how cold it was. Um, you know, my dad had a coat for her and she was like, I think she was kind of wondering why she had a coat and then, you know, realized that she needed a coat because it's really cold. <laughs> but um, even so, she was happy and would say hello to everyone she saw. And that was the Caribbean way. She was shocked when people just ignored her. Um, so dad had to put her straight. He'd been here for a while, so he understood, um, you know, what the British people were like. And he said, they don't do that here. Um, you know, by nature, we are sunny and delightful people. But that hostility by the British people was just the beginning of a right to hell. I mean, a hell to racism. I mean, my parents with my uncle lived in, we lived in Mail Road, Hearn Hill, and then we moved to Shakespeare Road, Brixton. Thereafter, my aunt's house in Kelvin Road. Highbury in the early um, early sixties, um, and when they arrived, many of our Windrush family had nowhere to live. So a vast number of our parents were transported by bus to Clapham to a shelter underneath Clapham South Tube Station, and they received food and a bed for six shillings and sixpence per week. They were placed in civilian shelters that were used during the war no windows, shortage of space, basically cramped and noisy due to where they were situated, the underground. Um, you know, one of our parents um, is reported as saying that the accommodation is primitive and unwelcoming, like a sparsely furnished rabbit's warren. Yeah? Uh, can you imagine? They just left sunny Jamaica, beautiful scenery, when they look out of their window, cool breeze, tasty food, and you end up in a cold, windless, cramped underground shelter, unbearable noise of passing trains, and inferior tasting food. And today, the London Transport Museum has opened up the deep level site for tourists to explore on guided tours. Not a good memory for our elders, I'm sure. I'm back, people, and going to hear from a beautiful warrior queen, Sister Angela Rose, who is the co-founder of Agatours and the charity All Together Giving Africa with her husband, uh, Yui Rose. So, Sister Angie, welcome, welcome, welcome. Let us hear from you about your beautiful family. Please take it away. Greetings, Sister Khadija. How are you? 
Thank you for inviting me to be part of your podcast. I'm very grateful. When you asked me about the Windrush and to say a few words about my mother, I have to be honest, the first thought that came to my mind, or I should say the first word that came to my mind was sacrifice. Why? And I thought about when we were growing up, and I'm going to go back to a memory that was quite challenging for me um, in 1971, when I actually thought about this, and I was very young. Our parents came over. In fact, my dad came over on the Windrush, and my mother came on another ship. And dad came first and did what he had to do, and then mum followed. But as we were growing up and they were settling here, you know, they worked very hard. And I remember mum saying that dad, you know, when dad came, she was left in Jamaica. And I remember I used to ask her questions, you know, and you know, and I remember I said to her, when you were coming, you know, when you were coming to join him, did um did he meet you at the port? And she said, No, 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 no. You know, never had to do that. Okay. But the sacrifices they made in order for us to be here. Now that I've grown and I'm at a mature age. And I've lived the journey. For example, they used to have to leave us at home uh, on our own. So there were three of us, three siblings, myself, my sister, and my brother. And um, what I'm going to actually share is quite quite emotional, but um, I've worked through it. So my sister died at the age of eight. And we were at home on on our own that day because during those days, you you never got carer's leave. You, You know, you couldn't just take annual leave. For the most part, if we were off from school, we had to stay at home on our own and fend for ourselves. And as an older child, By default, I had a responsibility to take care of my younger siblings. But my parents never complained. Their main purpose was to provide the basic needs that we needed. Food, water and shelter. And I know my mom struggled sometimes, but she never showed me. I mean, you know, as children were were inquisitive. Excuse me. So I noticed little things, you know, sometimes she'd cry, you know, silently in the room. My dad, he just got on with it. You know, he was the provider, the protector of his family. But they worked hard. They never shared most things that they experienced. Little snippets they would make comments about, you know, when we come to this country, the way we was treated, you know, or, you know, she would say, oh, we never had a fridge, we never had these little things, you know, I used to make the jelly on the windowsill, the fridge was the windowsill, you know, outside of the, the, the accommodation. And I remembered vaguely some of those things that she'd speak about. But they were treated quite badly, you know. And, you know, other things she used to say to me, other little comments when we grew up, she'd say, don't trust them. But she never expanded about what she meant about not trusting them. You know, always have manners. You know, 
don't make them upset you. Those kind of little comments. But we had to figure it out for ourselves. But I guess now what I've realized is that she used to say those things because she didn't want us to be angry and bitter because they experienced racism. They experienced a hostile, oppressive environment. Even though they were working hard, you know, and they weren't being disrespectful in any way, but just because of who they they are, you know, and where they came from. And I always say that they were invited here, you know, they didn't just come here. Their long-term plans was not to stay here. My dad was always saying, I gotta go back where I come from. <laughs> you know, but as time passed, you know, they the time passed, the five years, and, you know, we were growing up, and I guess at that time, you know, for them, it was about providing um, a better life for their children. So, yes, when where we are now, and I hear, you know, 75 years of Windrush, and I must say, I don't actually like to refer to them as the Windrush generation. I refer to them as the pioneer generation because that's who they were, pioneers. You know, and what they achieved, how they lived, you know, um, in those days was absolutely amazing. You know, if we could have a little bit of those values and principles and, you know, the unity, you know, um, that they demonstrated in those hard times, where would we be now? So I remember that generation of strength, motivation, empowerment. These are the words, these are the values that come to my mind when I think about them. And I personally, where I am now, I never forget them. And I will never forget them. And everything that I do, every single day, I try to represent the pioneer generation at the highest level. Because without them, without my parents, without their friends, you know, without those unknown pioneers, I could not be the person that I am today. My children would not be the people they are today. My grandson would not be who he is today. So, I do not take what they endured, what they suffered, the blood, the sweat, the tears, lightly. And I will never. So I am very grateful for this opportunity, my dear sister Khadija Ward, to just remember and to share some of those nuggets and memories Wow, wow, wow. I love it. Warrior Queen, Sister Angie, thank you so much. Give thanks, give thanks. The pioneer generation. I love it. I absolutely love it. From now on, that's what we're going to refer refer our parents to as the pioneer generation. Love all the values, the words, empowerment, unity, values. I absolutely love it. And indeed, as I said, where would we be now without our pioneer generation. So give thanks once again, Sister Angie, for coming and joining the Dark Girl Boss podcast and giving us a little bit of insight into your beautiful 
family. Give thanks. Windrush and race relations. So the Racial Relations Act 1965 was the first piece of legislation in the UK to address the prohibition of racial discrimination. The Act banned racial discrimination in public places and made the promotion of hatred on the grounds of race, colour or ethnic or national origins an offence. Um, okay, fair enough, but um, bear in mind, um, our, our, our parents probably didn't even understand, um, you know, the legislation, may not even been aware of it, probably didn't have enough money to, to take people to court, um, you know, to get justice. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it was just, you know, a piece of legislation. But anyway, um, the bill received royal assent on the 8th of November 1965 and came into force a month later. Um, it was introduced by the government in response to the increasing number of people, our people, who had moved to the UK from other Commonwealth countries at the time of the act being passed. There were nearly one million so-called immigrants living in the UK. It was criticised for failing to address vital areas where discrimination was most prevalent, namely employment and wider aspects of, of acquiring um, accommodation, you know, because we all know about, you know, no blacks, no dogs and all that business. Um, this led to the passing of the 1968 Race Relations Act, which made unlawful acts of discrimination within employment housing and advertising. Um, since then, we've had the Race Relations Act 1976 and the Race Relations Act 1976 as amended. Yeah, <clears throat> I actually worked for the Commission of Racial Equality when that came into force, and that was in 2000. Um, so that brought into force the race equality duty, and that was due to the murder of, you know, our, our young brother, Stephen Lawrence. So these acts of legislation, they haven't really prevented racism. I mean, racism just become more covert, really. Um, and the government itself exercises racism. So it, it's, it's quite a joke, really. Um, you know, via its own laws, it's just, it's racist. It creates laws to exercise its own racism. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. I mean, the immigration laws, that prevented us bringing any more of our family over and becoming British citizens. And the law that enabled the government to deport millions of our people that came here as a result of Windrush. Absolutely unbelievable. We come here, build up your country from the rack of ruin, and you have the audacity to tell us, you do not have papers to prove you are legitimately here. And you are therefore no longer welcome here after 70 odd years of, you know, cleaning up your shit. Get the fuck out of here. You know, you people are scandalous, to say the least. Let's listen to some of our people talking about the Windrush scandal. Should have been done years ago. Because it should have been done years ago. Because people came over here from the Caribbean young and work all their life and then they tell them they don't have any status in this country so that is wrong and to be quite honest with you it's what they're doing now is a little bit far too late what's your own experience when did you come here I came here 1960 um I came over here and I after a while, I did work about jobs and I joined the army and I was in the army for 13 and a half years. And that's it. So, so if somebody had come to you, I mean, you, you got your papers, didn't you? Yes, I have all my, all my documents. If somebody came to you now and said, prove to me you're British, how does that make you feel? Well, I have my papers. I can show anybody my papers and says, there you are. I have my passport. I have all my, my documents and, um, my documents for proof that I'm British and I have them. So it don't bother me, but other people that have, that came over here and lost the papers that don't have the savvy to get, to get the documents in order. 
They're the people that you're going to bother. It's, it's an insult, isn't it? It's more than an insult. It's, it's degrading, actually, to someone. I mean, to be quite honest, people came over here and worked in the railways, the nurses' home, and the buses, and all such like jobs that other people didn't want to do, the people didn't want to do. And now they tell them that they don't have any status. That's ridiculous. I came over in 1963. Um, fortunately for me, my papers, my papers are in order. But I sympathize with the people that hasn't got their papers. I also sympathize with the people that cannot find the papers because of um, the government legislation. So, uh, like he said, it's, it's very unfair. You work here 30 years. Now, uh, there's many people who lost their jobs, don't get no benefit. So, I want to know how those people has got to be compensated for the two or three years that they lost. Um, somebody could call me on the street anytime and say, oh, have you got your papers? Now, I know that I'm, my papers are in order. What I would say, you prove that I ain't right. You know, after being here 50 years, you prove that I'm not entitled to be here. I don't have to prove anything. I shouldn't have to prove anything. Nothing has reported about it until lately. So how comes it took so long it to be recognized? And I came in 65. I lived in London for about um, nine months before I joined the army. Right? And I can remember when my first travel abroad, my sergeant said to me, Moore, do you want to have your passport changed? Because I came and the Jamaican passport. And I thought, well, it's not necessary. I'm in the army. So why should I need to, my passport changed? Anyway, it's afterward I realized why he was saying that to me. Because when I came back to this country, I have to join a different queue to come through. And, and I, my sense of belonging will never change. I, it will never change. I am that I am who I am, and I'll continue to be that. You know what I mean? I, I know there's a lot of, um, you would have called it, injustice, especially when you have dark skin. <laughs> there's a lot of injustice there. Uh, we never seem to get the 100% are treated fairly. But, you know what I mean? I don't let that bother me. I just get on with it. I hope and trust that these people who have slaved all their life practically in this country will get a just reward at the end of the day. So whether you have a Jamaica passport or a British passport, it shouldn't really make any difference because you were born British. You're part of the Commonwealth. So this ooh-ha about, I feel there's an underhanded thing because I, I remember the statement that um, James Cullen made in 1964, 65. I was at school then, I remembered it, and it is coming back today. Because one of his things is uh, we and the Europeans have the same culture. So what they're telling us that although you've been British for 400 years, you're not, you not, haven't got the same culture as, as a British person, which is totally wrong. Man. Yeah, well, one of the things that mystified me is that um, back in the day when we were, uh, when we were required, they, they asked us to demonstrate our loyalty to the crown. They brought us over as British subject. Having done so, we did what we were supposed to do to assist, you know, um, um, Britain in all its wants and needs. And all of a sudden, they, they sort of like wanted, like more or less, to disqualify us from being British subjects. You know, we demonstrate our loyalty to them. Why do they want to, you know, take that away from us at this stage? You know, we all British subjects. Right, we legally, you know, accepted at that stage. All of a sudden, you know, when, it con when it's convenience for convenient for them to, to you know, to think otherwise, we we left in the lurch. It's it's not fair. All of you are following. You all got your paper. Can you explain why you being so personal? Because allowing you as well. because we are all of one race. You know, of course, it will affect us. Of course, we, you know, they're, they're friends and distant relatives who may not have, you know, um, seen in the same light as we are. 
they are, their lives are destroyed. It's not right. And we will feel it. It's a brotherhood there, so to speak. Some people assume, owing to the fact that they came here um, eight years of age with their parents, go to school, you know, all their lives, work. They believe or some assume that they automatically be British and never bother it. So I think uh, it's the assuming situation that caused them not to fill the papers up, you know. I think that's, that's where one of the problems is. I would personally call it a Brexit syndrome, whereas lack of information, lack of proper information, or what you can do or what you can't do or what you should do to achieve this, to get your papers in order. A lot of people accept that they were British, and now they're more or less taking it away from us, saying, well, you've got to have papers, and the papers you have have been destroyed, you know? So what can you do? You can't do anything about it. You did ask the question why we all feel so strongly about it, considering that you might have, what, four different, four different nationalities here, if you don't. Barbados, Trinidad, or wherever. Yeah, we do feel strongly about it. We're a collective, like, uh, like in the United Nations. Touch one, you touch all. That's all it is. Touch one, you touch all, my friend. Mm -hmm. So we will feel strongly about it. And uh, we're not going to jump on the road and protest and riots. We're too old for that now. We want a peaceful transition, and we can only trust that the government to the day stick to the promises that they've been making for the last couple of days or so. I'm surprised at, at this stage is to seem to have a difficulty the distinction between legal and illegal. They're trying to, to say to us it's illegal that they're putting the emphasis on, and yet they're unable to explain as to how they become illegal. Yeah. You know, we can only make this because they haven't fulfilled the, the right documentation. That may be the case. But that's not, that's not a difficult thing to, to, um, you know, to get to the bottom of, is it? Uh, and it's, it's, it's not, it really is, is sad. Well, I think most of us will say who's been through the right sort of lines, most of us will, will say that we are British. Our, our, you know, our responsibility first and foremost would be to the British. Yeah, but what do you, how do you feel about Britain and the British government and this country? Should I think yeah, we are in a minority. We're in a minority, and and if we do, most of us do feel accepted here. Let's face it: three million of us, and eighty-five million of the other people. <laughs> if they were all bad, we wouldn't be here, would we? It's just a matter of legislation and and government mishandling, you know, and not giving the the, the right people the right officers, the, the right information to deal with these problems. That's it. But has the scandal made you feel any differently about the country? Yeah. No, no, I would be ashamed of the country. Well, for this to happen, I said the only thing we can do is say a shame of the country to let this happen. You know what I mean? But as far as I'm concerned, you know what I mean? I'm here over X amount of years, so I've got to be accepted to this country and roots. I think first and foremost, our allegiance, you know, will be to British because we 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 develop we we come and we we develop a culture which is which is um you know which is pleasant in our eyes. You know, we got not nothing against the British or such, but we treated correctly, and even so, you know, it, whatever they say, it's it's not going to be. It's not it's not going to be just you know. Handed in just like that, we really would have to, you know. The allegiance of British, the Britain, and the Commonwealth, and uh, the royal family. I think most people in England will stick to the same, the same thing. You know, we, we've had we've had problems before. We've had problems worse than this, and we have overcome that. And the only one of the thing that a lot of people here would be happy to know that you now of a government who said, "Look, we will do this, and we will do that." We wait with bated breath to see whether they come up with it, but we believe most of us believe that they will. To me, there's an undercurrent going on. There's an undercurrent going on. Um, the European Union, the influx from 
from the Eastern Bloc and stuff like that. There's an undercurrent going. Like I said, I remember James Callahan talking about cultures. Remember that, you know, distinctly. So there could be, there could be that, you know, apart from the countries getting bankrupt. <laughs> But you've got to follow that through, though, haven't you? I mean, if the worry is about Eastern European migrants coming here and swamping British culture, why why are they taking it out on this generation? Because we're scapegoat. We've got the same culture. We made a scapegoat. When the war finished, the British government asked to with Caribbean Island, come over and help us build England. I came in 1960. Do every job on the sun. And the richest thing, you know, they want the European to come in. So what they try to do, kick out the blacks and bring in the European because they haven't got no way to come and live. And that's the only thing I think behind it all. So you think Yeah, that's what I think. I think they want to, they, they was trying, probably backfire, but they was trying to get rid of us and bring the European in. So, it will be all white. And that's it. And that's the way I see it. Is it surprising? Very. Very much after coming out with my bus off it couldn't. Not right. So it does change the way you feel about Britain. It changes the way I feel, but but not Britain and its whole because I lived here for fifty six years. And I, I, I don't and think I'm it changed like, your allegiance to Britain. It changed the way you think of Britain feels about you. Well, it's not Britain. It's, it's certain people. The government. It's the government what run the country. That's, that's what do it. The British people on a whole, it's, it's decent people. Of course. It's just legislation that the government is trying to uh, appease another minority group that think, think of, the, of the grid, really. Um, but, and it's... It's sad, but we will overcome that, you know, been through worse. The political side of things, we can't deal with here, and we can't handle it here. I came to Britain from tiny little island in St. Vincent. I knew no prejudice of any kind when I left my homeland. The, Brit the colonial masters were there. They had their children there. We all went to school together. We played together. We did everything together. Until I came to England in 1961. As a young man, 19 years of age, thinking, of course, that I'm going to the motherland and all the help I need is there. I met and put up with some racism. Well, a lot of racism, really. And... We overcame those. In 1963, I decided, well, you know something? Probably there's a better life for me if I change the way things are at the moment. So I joined the army, where I've served for 22 years, leaving in, in the rank of warrant officer. And even then in the army, we had this problem of racism, and not on a large scale, but it was there. I think most of it was jealousy to an extent because three or four of us black guys among 40, 50 English or Irish or whatever guys, you had to compete. And I always compete to win. And I think that most of that time, whatever racism or whatever prejudice there was, was done to some form of jealousy. If I can't get you one way, I'll get you the other so to speak. What is happening today? I don't really understand it, and I don't really understand the reason why. When I left my island, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, we were British. I came here as a British subject. I eventually got rid of my old passport and received a British passport, but not not until I was told that I had to pay, right, to receive a bit of paper, some form of certificate that says I am a British citizen. Why? That was the question I asked. After 18 years yeah, of serving this country around the world, I was suddenly 
faced with the fact that I don't belong here. It didn't make sense. I had to pay. I absolutely refused. Absolutely refused. I'm traveling around on an ID card or a passport to various parts, parts well, not so many parts of the world, like Cyprus, Aden, Germany, even Northern Ireland, where I narrowly escaped death a couple of times, yeah, serving this country. And then suddenly someone saying to me, I have to pay for that privilege. Well, that wasn't a privilege. I was serving a cause. I had an allegiance. Why suddenly take it away from me or thinking that now you don't belong anymore? Yeah? So I absolutely refused. I went and uh, had interviews with my commanding officer and such people and explained my situation to them and I said, I'm not doing this. I was entitled to read Queen's regulations like every other officer in the, in the Army or Navy or Air Force. And in those days, I noticed, and I knew for a fact, there were guys joining the forces from the Republic of Ireland. They're a different story to someone who came here as a British person, and they had passports given. They weren't buying it. So what happened to you in the Of course, well, <laughs> I didn't get a passport. I got a bit of paper. Right? I made the army pay for it. But the, the deal was, I will pay and they will refund the money. So I made absolutely sure that I got my money. Because I saw no sense at all whatsoever that after 18 years of serving this country, I'm suddenly told, what happens then if I'd finished? Was I too going to be deported? Yes. <laughs> yeah? It didn't make sense. Well, there it is. You heard from some of our veteran elders there about what they thought about the treatment um, of us, um, well, the racist treatment, really, towards us. And one of the elders actually said, talked about um, Britain trying to remove us to make way for particular uh, white ethnic groups. And I'm actually inclined to believe that. Um, it makes complete sense, and I actually thought that before anyway. But, I mean, there you have it. You know, that's that's how it goes, yeah? We're always treated at the bottom of the... We're always put at the bottom of the pile by Europeans. We're treated like rubbish, regardless of what we do, how much we do to help, how friendly we are. We're always treated like trash in the end. Um, anyway, the government... Um, I believe reluctantly came up with a scheme. It's called the Windrush um, Compensation Scheme. Um, and it's for people that, you know, ha where there was a negative impact for them uh, due to this Windrush scandal. Now, this scheme itself is a minefield. And I think that it's been deliberately created in that way. So it's hard to navigate. So people will find it very difficult to get to complete the forms and do whatever. And it's been it's designed in that way. You know, that's what they do. That's they design systems that way to make things difficult. We know that. Um, but it's this uh, the compensation. You can get compensation. It's meager. It's very meager compensation for the way they treated us. I think it's an absolute insult. But um, there you have it. Just you know, why not just try to get. Um, as much as you possibly can and there's people some of our people that help you with this so um there's a brother called ronald houslin or houslin um, i do apologize my brother if i'm pronouncing your name wrong but he um helps i'm just trying to find it actually his details now so there's um, a website called justiceforwindrushgenerations.co.uk. And let me say that again. Justiceforwindrushgenerations, that's with an S at the end, .co.uk. And you go there and you can find all relevant information and contact details um, about how you can get help. 
um, to navigate this compensation scheme. And actually, the brother has kindly given me his contact details. So it's Ronald Housling, and he's email so i'll give you his email and his number his email is r h o u s l i n 1 at gmail.com um i'll say that again that's r h o u s l i n 1 at gmail.com so that's romeo Hotel Oscar, what's that? You, Sierra, Lima, India, November 1 at gmail.com. And the brother's telephone number is 07991781. So that's 07991781. Yeah. But I mean, you can contact me if you have any problems. I think you have my number. You can find me anywhere on the on the internet. Um, contact me if you have any problems. But yeah, it's just this for windrushgeneration.co.uk. Go on there. You can get some help um, to try to get some payment for this scheme. As I said, it's really, really difficult to navigate. So we need to help. We need to help each other with this. But I say claim as much as you possibly can. Um, I just used to remember, I mean, I'm sure a lot of you can resonate with this, um, all the stories that our parents used to tell us, you know, about the Caribbean, and you actually felt that you were there with all these stories. I just loved it. I just loved hearing the stories. Very exciting. Um, I know that uh, my mother, she used to, one of her jobs, she used to pick, actually pick cotton, <laughs> one of her jobs. Um, then she was a seamstress, a machinist, I think she was doing, so she'd tell me about all these jobs she had, tell me about how she had to cook when she was... Um, you know, she was only about 12 years old and she had to cook, cook for her father. Her mother wasn't there. My um, mother's mother, my, my grandmother, she'd gone on to um, St. Lucia actually to seek her fortune. And she ended up having um, two of my uncles yeah, there. Yeah, so they were raised in St. Lucia um, and she continued to live there until she was, till she died. She was 110. Um you know, I, I met my grandmother, I saw her first, went in Barbados when I first went there in 78, you know, then I saw her again, went to her 100th birthday, and I saw her a couple of times after that. Um, <clears throat> but my mother, yeah, she was there, she was left um, with her two younger brothers, um, one of them who's now passed, one of them's still alive, the very youngest one, my Uncle Neville, Uncle Neville Ward, I really love him. Um, but yeah, so she was there, she was left um, behind, so she had to kind of grow up very, very quickly. The story, one of the stories that I love is the story she told me about my father when um, she said he rescued this like little monkey, a baby monkey from somewhere or the other. It was in pain or something that happened. So he rescued it. And um, then he used to walk around with that monkey, little monkey on his shoulder and that monkey follows him everywhere. I thought that such a beautiful story. Can you imagine? <laughs> walking around with this little monkey on your shoulder everywhere you went, the monkey went. Absolutely wonderful. Love the stories. Love all the stories. You know what? I think I want to do a podcast on that. Hear all the stories from people. I, I want to collect the stories from from you all. I want to collect stories and hear all the good stories um, from when you know our parents were back home. That's one. That's going to be my next one. All the stories. I just want to hear all these stories. So that will be the next one. Just another quick story. Yeah, my mother told me. It's very very quick. Um, it's just about, you know, respect, how we had to respect our parents even when we were grown because my dad was about 20 and um, his mother um, would go to work and tell him, like, to have the food cooked by the time she comes home from work. This was in Barbados. And um, he'd be playing skylarking, playing dominoes with his friends and then the sun would be coming down. So he'd do, like, a... A hundred hundred meter dash um, down the hill in about nine seconds. Yeah, he was really fast, and um, you know, start 
having put in, a, you know, a million pots, filling them with water all at the same time, high, you know, high, high on the, the fire, you know, trying to cook this food before his mother got home because if the food wasn't cooked, he know what he knows, he knew, excuse me, what he would um, get. He would get like, um, you know, a backhander. His mother would put her hands on him, you know, even though he was grown, he was 20. These um, new millennials that have been raised in England, it's very, very different. I mean, the respect seems to have gone out of the window. I remember when I was growing up, even here, you know, obviously it's Caribbean culture and everything still, even though being raised here, um, I was afraid of elders on the street. I, you know, I'd have to respect them if they said anything to me or tried to discipline me, even if I didn't know them. That was the respect that we had for our elders. But now, I mean, if you look at, them sideways or if you say anything they're ready to give you back talk and um you know disrespect you even put their hands on you that's the culture that they've been raised in it's just really sad that you know that it's come to this this is a story about racism this one obviously here not in the caribbean my mother told me um that my dad nearly killed a man um because the man spat in his face yeah, racism, spat in his face. And my dad just saw red. And um, he just nearly killed him. My uncle, fortunately, who was with my dad at the time, had to drag my dad off this man because my dad would have killed him. And can you imagine if they would have got caught by the police, what would have happened? You know, I don't even like to imagine. But at the end of the day, all of that, that racism, that's just that kind of hate, I just don't understand it. I just really, really, I just don't get it. I just don't understand that kind of hatred that you would feel towards someone, that you would feel that because of your colour of your skin, I think that I can spit in your face. Well, no one's going to stand there and allow you to do that, thank you very much. So there you have it. Take your beating. You know, the racism was such that, you know, they wouldn't even allow us to open bank accounts. Can you imagine? You ask a people to come over here and clean up your country and do the jobs that you don't want to do. And you don't even want them to bank in your, your banks. Yeah. Your banks, which were created as a result of slavery anyway. You don't want us to bank in them. But to be honest, I think that worked out for the best because um, our parents started using the pardon, which they used to use when they was, you know, back home anyway. You know, so it's our own banking system that we use. And I think that we as a people today here in Britain need to turn to the trust our parents had between them when they first arrived here. The pardon, the banking system was ours. We controlled it and we used it for the benefit of our people. I remember being in a pardon when I was I was about 17 and some girls that I used to work with, some some of my they were from Jamaica actually, and they did the pardoner. And um, you know, I was in it, I loved it. I loved it, and I loved it when it was my turn to get the money and you know, it helped me save for wherever I wanted. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Um we need that self governance again. Banks are not institutions of trust, yet we trust our livelihood with them. In fact, as I said, banks were created on the back of the enslavement of our ancestors. Therefore, on the basis of principle and integrity, we should not support them. We shouldn't even really be putting our money in there. We must rebuild the trust we once had and rely upon ourselves self-reliance i'm always promoting that to govern ourselves to build and grow together that's what we need to be doing we need to take some lessons from our 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 elders our ancestors that came here yeah from the windrush we need to take some lessons from them in terms of how to conduct ourselves 
as a community, as a unit, and working together, the principles they brought from the Caribbean, we need to maintain those principles. And I think that we'll do a lot better once we start taking on board those principles and, and remembering you know, where we actually came from and, and the lessons that we were taught when we, was, when we were growing up. Yes, we were raised in Britain, but within our household, we were brought up within Caribbean households. So we had the same values. We had all the same integrity, the same community, the same working together, the same unit, the same love for one another, which one of the one of the elders was talking about when he was talking about the scandal. He was saying, touch one, touch all. That's why we feel it. He was asked by the commentator, why do you feel it? You have your papers. But he said he felt it because it's one of his own. Yeah, that's how we have to build that community again. So we need to learn from it. We cannot just allow our parents to come here, be treated the way they were treated, and then we just, you know, get on and just carry on as though nothing's happened. We need to take those principles forward and make it count, make the life that they came here, the sacrifices they made count. We need to make it count. Sister Angie, I'd just like to say, yeah, give thanks for opening up your heart to us, um, just really being honest and showing your emotions about the tragic loss of your younger sibling. I can't even imagine what that must be like, losing a sibling and as one so young as well. So, Sister Angie, thank you. Thank you so very much. And I speak on behalf of all of our brothers and sisters. Our heart goes out to you and your family. Well, my beauties, my people, I hope you enjoyed the Windrush 75-year generation special or as our warrior queen, Sister Angie, would say, the pioneer generation. I hope you enjoyed this special. Please share the podcast with your family, with your friends. And always remember, feel great and do great. This is Khadija Ward with the Dark Girl Boss podcast. If you want to know more about me, just go to darkgirlboss.com. I'm out. Introducing the Dark Girl Boss podcast for the melanated woman and girl across the globe. Unlock your genes of greatness. Feel powerful within the skin you are in. Love your unique DNA through our stories, facts, original narratives, quotes and poems. Join me, your host, Khadija Ward, on all major podcast platforms. Feel great and do great with the Dark Girl Boss Podcast. Not to be missed.